So when we say the Torah is the word of God, what we're actually saying is a bunch of different things. So let's start with the written Torah. When we say the written Torah is the word of God, right? Um, and this is uh, what all the classical commentaries agree. It means that literally every single word, God's the author. So for example, if you look at a book called Who Wrote the Bible? by Richard Elliott Friedman in 1987. So that book is essentially a layman's guide to the documentary hypothesis, which is a uh, late 19th century scholar, uh, scholarship uh, theory uh, to try to disprove the divinity of the Torah and to the multiple authorship theory of the Torah. Uh, and in it, he starts off with his introduction, Richard Elliott Friedman, a nice Jewish guy, and he's like, hey, well, traditionally everyone thought that the Torah was written by Moses. The second page of the book, and that's only one of the few mistakes that he makes right at the beginning, because traditionally we have never said that Moses is the author. Moses is the scribe. Moses is the stenographer. God's the author. Mm-hmm. So when we say that's the word of God. We say Moshe is nothing more than a typist. Right? He's the one who is writing down what God tells him to write. So even when uh, like one of the questions is why, why does uh, why does uh, Torah not start off and say these uh, uh, or why is Moses referred to in in third party? Because, because God wanted to, God told him you write and God said to Moses and even when Moses writes his own uh, his own statements God tells him write what you said. Right. right. Thus, uh, one of the pillars of of documentary hypothesis, the idea that Deuteronomy has its own author. Now, why would they say Deuteronomy has its own author? So, I'm teaching you guys something. Uh, maybe you don't know this, but a lot of people don't believe that the Torah is written by God. And the, the scholarship, the, the, the scholarly approaches that is called the documentary hypothesis. And they say, hey, there's multiple names for God, mul- must be multiple authors. Right? And uh, Deuteronomy must be, a, must be a separate book. must be have a separate author, the D author. Why would Deuteronomy have to be, have its own author? Why can't it be the same author? Or the same two authors, or the same three authors? There were different styles. So that's one reason. Different styles in writing. And number two is because Deuteronomy predicted a lot of things that actually happened. So if you're working with the presupposition that prophecy is not possible, and thus events that are predicted and indeed came true, right? then you must conclude that it was written after those events happened, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no other way to do that. So if the Torah describes uh, events that happened only once in history and they actually happened, it must be, argues the scholar who doesn't believe in God, it must be that these things were written afterwards because prophecy is not possible. Oh yeah, but 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 that's a good point. As Genesis seventeen, um, but the Torah is according to everyone written already afterwards. The Torah is written after the 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 the, 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 the Exodus, right? But if you are working with the assumption, this is the only assumption you'll consider that prophecy is not possible. Thus, events described uh, that actually indeed happened must be written post facto. Uh, thus, Deuteronomy had to be written by someone else. Like, that's the argument. Now, uh, uh, um, as to the point that, that uh, the young lady brought up, uh, that, it, that Deuteronomy is written in a different style, well, why is Deuteronomy? Because Deuteronomy essentially is Moses' last will and testament, right? Moses is giving a speech. The first four sections of Deuteronomy is Moses giving a speech. Well, so how is it in the Torah? I thought God wrote the Torah. Yeah, God tells Moses, write down your speech. So those words were said by Moses, Thus, of course, it has a different flavor. Moses is the originator of the words. God then told him, okay, take your words and we'll inscribe them in the Torah. Voila, simple, answered. So how are we saying the Torah has always been? Huh, I'm sorry? The Torah has always It's a question been. you've asked me already three times. <laughs> I think we made a video about this. No, I don't think so. So the idea of Torah having multi- multiple realities is a good question. Let's hold off on the question, okay? But let, let, let's get back to the point Monica brought up. So, it's just sort of, so when we say that the Torah is the word of God, what we mean uh, with regards to the written Torah is that every word is written by God. Thus, the Talmud even says, Talmud says, if someone says, I believe that the Torah is written by God, true. 
Moses is the scribe, okay, but you know, just because you have a typist, it doesn't mean that you're not the author of the book, right? So Moses, God's the author. However, there's one verse that God didn't write it. Moses wrote it, or Joshua wrote it, or Ezra wrote it, someone else wrote it, right? That person is, in effect, repudiating all of Judaism, says the Talmud. And so much so that he cuts himself off from the Jewish people, he's down to a portion of war with them. Why? Because a core, a core belief of the Jewish people is the idea of the Torah in its entirety. Every letter, every word, right? every, every verse, every section of it mm. being written by God. Even Moses the last, described. Even the last yes. Verse yes. So the last eight verses, last eight verses, good question. Uh, the Talmud talks about, hey, the last eight verses describe Moses' death. So Moses couldn't have been the scribe. Well, yeah, he couldn't have been the scribe if we don't believe prophecy. So one opinion of the Talmud is that, well, he wrote it beforehand, just like he wrote a lot of things beforehand. That's a, the, the book has lots of prophecies, right? Uh, the other opinion is that Joshua, Joshua wrote it. Joshua was the scribe. But either way, God's still the author, right? So the Talmud does address that. That's a good question. The Talmud does address it. Either Moses wrote it in, with tears uh, or Joshua wrote it. Well, yeah. So he would have. Well, well, you. You're saying it's possible for it to have been written before he died. Yes, it's possible that God told him everything, but he didn't want him to know where he was going to be buried. Yeah, well, that I'm saying, but it's not necessarily unprecedented that events are inscribed in the Torah before they happened. Which, by the way, I want to add another point here to Deuteronomy. If Deuteronomy was written after the events happened, for example, after the first exile, Babylonian exile, thus the compiler redactor of the book had to have come afterwards. Huh? Whoever it was, Ezra, right? Either whoever it was, or some other redactor, it came afterwards, right? If they came afterwards, then somehow we have the miracle of the finalized document not only being given to the Jews, but given to the Jews who are scattered across the world. Think how insane that is. Like that, that, that part of the mathematics doesn't end up. How are we convincing Jews to accept the Torah if it's not as it is written is a great question and there really isn't an answer. But let's assume that can be done. Are, do we, can we really believe that this all happened after the Jews are already scattered throughout the world? The Jews in North Africa, Jews in, Jews in Europe, of course, tons of Jews all across the Near, the, the near and Middle East. Jews in Asia Minor, Jews everywhere. Suddenly, now is a time where it gets finalized and all the Jews have suddenly accepted and will some guy go around the whole world peddling it? Bizarre. Either way, really, um, no, that's what the guards... I know there's a few questions over here as well. I don't want to tip them. Um, um, but either not way... Not only that, can I go just ahead, say this? Go ahead. The, the Holocaust is predicted in... Derivative. Well, how does one example? A lot of things that are predicted. I mean, well, obviously... Holocaust-like yeah. events are predicted. Yes, so Parsha's Tisavo. Tisavo. Tisavo, yes. It's 98 verses of absolute horror that make, you, make yeah. your eyeballs fall out. Absolute horror. Well, well uh, we, yeah. unless, we're, unless we're prophets, we can't really say what exactly it's talking about. Clearly, it's talking to, about Holocaust-like events. Now, there are those that would argue that this, these events didn't happen only once in history. If you study the history of the destruction of the Second Temple and everything that happened at that time, uh, with the Great Revolt that began in the year 66 and continued to the fall of, uh, to all the way through the fall of Beitar in 136. So that whole period of time, uh, we're talking, I guess, 70 years, it was, there was so much bloodshed and so much tyranny and so much suffering and so much persecution of the Jews that that would also uh, fill into the, fall in, in the categories of, of what's to be described. But either way, it, 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 I wouldn't say that the Holocaust is described. I, I, I would agree well, that it, it may be. But Holocaust-like events, yes, it seems very, very eerily so. But there are other, 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 other events, um, once in all of human history, events that are uh, predicted in the Torah, which, and we know today is true. So um, that's very comforting for us to know that not only is is um, the Torah itself illogical to accept at, uh, with a multiple authorship theory, but also right now we have the gift of of hindsight to know that the events that, predicted, that were predicted in the Torah, events that happened only once in only human history, um, are indeed true. Like the first time when God gave the Torah to Moses, did God write it, ready-made, gave Moses the Torah? What do you mean? 
did God when? do all when? the right when? thing when? himself? When? 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 When he went up the mountain, the first time God so gave... He didn't, he didn't get the scrolls. Remember, this is a very important point. Moshe, the scrolls only happened later, right? So the Torah was written either incrementally, either as way. it happened. It means, like this, the actual written... When we say, we say Torah, it's very this is the point I wanted to bring up with what Monica brought up. When we say the word Torah, we have to be very careful what we mean. Jewish people got the Torah Mount Sinai, right? We all, we're all familiar with that? Torah Mount Sinai? Well, there's still 40 years of the written Torah that hasn't yet happened. So imagine you got the scrolls at, at, at Mount Sinai, and then it's a, it's a few months later, and the spies are sent to Israel. You think the spies, are, they, they're able to read what happened, right? But that's not what I know. Well, well everybody talks different. So, so they got the tent. No, I'll, t- I'll tell you, this is the final, this is the final, not everyone talks different. This is the way it happened, okay? They got the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, Okay. Moses goes up, he comes back down, the whole back and forth, he gets the tablets, he breaks the tablets, he goes back up, goes back down, seven set of tablets, right? He gets all the way to the book of Yisrael. So he writes down from Genesis beginning to halfway through Exodus. Then, throughout the rest of the journey of, 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 of the 40 years in the wilderness, he either, the Talmud brings two opinions, either he writes it incrementally, as things happen, God tells, okay, write this section, write this section, write this section, write this section over the next 40 years, or he writes it all the way at the end. Either way, the written Torah does not all come at Mount Sinai. However, if we look at what happened at the Mount Sinai experience, right, it was one day of the experience of the mountain, crazy prophecy, miracles, and then they're there for a whole other year. So what happened during that year? That's when they got the Torah. When they got the Torah, as in what the Torah means. What does the word Torah mean? Torah means instructions. They got the instructions of God. Well, how they got the instructions of the gods? They didn't get it in necessarily a written form. They got the instructions of how to be a Jew. Moshe, God tells Moshe, to be a Jew, you have to wear tefillin. Uh, what does tefillin look like? It's black. It's got compartments. And the compartments are X, right? Uh, to be a Jew, there's a mitzvah of Shabbos. And what does Shabbos mean? To be a Jew, right, we eat the matzah on Passover. All those things were given. That's what we call the oral Torah, which is the companion work of the written Torah. Also comes from God to Moses, to the Jewish people. And does that make sense? No? That's interesting. It, it sounds as if... The Torah was given to Moses orally, and then Moses wrote it down. Well, no, well, depends. The written Torah? As the Talmud was given from mouth to mouth over generations uh-huh. and written by. And right, right. Writers. But the, the difference is, is that the Talmud, uh, each word is not. Is not yes, is yes. not the same thing as a word of of, of, of the written Torah because he, because they wrote it down it's on their own as opposed to God telling Moses write Vayomer and he Moshe write Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Lemor so that's word for word. Okay, so is is it true that uh, as a scribe Jeremiah also has written some of the books? Some of the books of the Torah. Or, no, Jeremiah, we know, wrote Jeremiah, wrote Echa. So he wrote the Jeremiah. Well, I, that's, 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 that's what we believe. Mm-hmm. But either way, that, that point, remember, how many mitzvahs are there in the Torah? 613. How many of them are included in the 19 books of the prophets, of the Bible? Hmm? Anybody know? Out of the 24 books of the Jewish Bible, how many, of them, how many mitzvahs of the 613 are included in the 19 books that come after the five books of Moses. Five books of Moses, there's 19 other books, right? Joshua, Judges, Kings, right? Samuel, etc. Et How many mitzvahs are included in the last 19? Anyone knows no, the breakdown? No, repeated is what you really mean. Huh? Right? No, no. None. That's the correct answer. None. None. Zero. Because they were... None, zero. Right, zero. All of them are in are in the are in the five books of the Torah, and the Talmud goes as far as to say that if the Jewish people didn't sin, the Jewish people didn't sin, then all they would have was the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. Why? Because that has all the Torah, and the reason why they need Joshua because Joshua also has in it the allocation of the land of Israel. The only reason why the other books are written was because, as we know, the Jewish people sinned, and therefore they had to know their history to know what mistakes were made. Uh, that's the, the, the various histories of the Jewish people. Plus, they have to know the, the admonitions and castigations, the reprimandations of the prophets to take Musar, to take, uh, to take lessons and learn 
and 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 become better people. But if the Jewish people didn't see him, they didn't really need that. So yes, uh, the the question as to who's the author of the Torah is infinitely more important than who exactly wrote Tehillim. We know that Talmud says Tehillim had ten authors. Tehillim, Psalms. So Psalms primarily is written by David. And most Psalms have a he- in the heading, in the first sentence, who's the author. Uh, um, so we have even Psalms authored by Moses, right? Psalm 90. Tefillah Moshe, Shalot Him. However, as to the exact authorship of every Psalm, it's not necessarily that important. The exact authorship, oh, does someone else add some, some, um, Something to the book of Isaiah. I, we, we don't believe that, but even if that was true, that wouldn't change anything. So I'm saying, uh, we have traditions as to who wrote what, um, but it is not anywhere nearly as, import, as important as to the authorship of every word, every letter of, of the five books of Moses. So why does God chose Moses for the Torah to mm. give him, and why not Abraham or somebody else? Mm. That's a good question. So why is Mo? And you, who 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 else asked that question? You know who else asked who your else? question? What? Who was the first person to ask your question? What do you mean? Who was the first person to ask this question? Moses asked. Moses question. himself. Yeah. Moses himself says, "Why me? Why me? Like why are you choosing me?" And yeah. huh? Yeah, exactly. I, I yeah, I tried pe, exactly. I, I have a lisp. I have a I have a uh, Moshe, Moshe wasn't charismatic like the traditional leader you would think. You know, uh, we think of a leader as someone who is from our people. Moshe grew up with a power, right? We think of a leader who's who's who you know who's eloquent. Moshe has a lisp. Oh, well, he did ask. Right. I'm sorry. So he did. Ask and the God, question. God tells Moses, says, "You're going to take the, me. Why would I take?" Why, what exactly qualifies me is to be the leader? And God says, you know what qualifies you more than anything else? Your, your humility. Moshe's humility was you know, the greatest the world has ever seen. And humility is the trait needed for Torah. Right? What does Torah mean? You said word of God, right? Instructions. Instructions, instructions, godly instructions, right? For me to actually accept God's instructions, what do I have to do? I have to humble myself. I have to submit myself. The relationship that man has with God. What's the relationship? We, are, we only get, we give nothing. Why? Because God doesn't need anything that we give him. God doesn't need it. Right? However, to have that dynamic, we have to be totally subservient. We have to, the Talmud even says, he says, who has Torah? The person who makes himself like a vast wasteland of a desert. You're nothing. You're empty. Then you're a receptacle for Torah. So Moshe had a quality that was needed to be, a, to, to be the uh, paramount receptacle of Torah. And there's a lot more on the subject. We find uh, other examples, many other examples in, 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 in Jewish history of leaders specifically being uh, lauded uh, by their uh, or being admired in their leadership vis-a-vis their their capacity uh, for humility or their humility, so that that that, that that's the answer. Um, Wasn't David also at some point? Well, there's a there's a. Um, I think I think that the Talmud says that uh, that. Ezra was worthy to the Torah to be given to him. There's a great episode. Oh, this is a fantastic episode in the Talmud uh, where it says that Moshe goes up to heaven. And he goes up to heaven to get the Torah. And he sees that the Almighty is writing, is making crowns on top of the letters. He's tying crowns. If you look at a Torah scroll, you'll see that some of the letters... A shin, for example, it's got these little decorations on top of the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and said Moses says to God, "Well, why do you need to do that?" And this whole dialogue is very interesting. We have to analyze it if we have some more time. You know, one time we have a whole class in just that that particular Talmud. Either way, he says that there's going to be someone in many generations whose name is Akiva ben Yosef, Akiva the son of Joseph, the great Rabbi Akiva, and he is going to take each one of these crowns and learn laws from them. He's about to derive laws from the crowns, not just words. He didn't. He, of course, the words teach us laws. He's say, he's going to take the crowns and learn from the crowns. 
says, wow. And he says, like, show him to me. So God takes Moses and does time traveling. And Moses is suddenly just sitting down in the, uh, in the class and lecture Rabbi Kiva. And Rabbi Kiva's giving a lecture, and Moses doesn't understand what's going on. And then the whole lecture, he doesn't understand what's going on. And then someone asks Rabbi Kiva a question and says, well, where do you know this particular law? One of the students asks. He says, well, this is from Moses in Mount Sinai. And when Moses hears that, he kind of hears that, he comes down, goes back to God, and he tells God, if you have a man like this, great Rabbi Kiva, why are you giving Torah via me? Give Torah through him. What does God respond? Silence. No, he, he tells him, silence. Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Continues the Talmud. I'll only finish this. It gets, it gets weirder. This is an example of a wild card. Up with this in the Talmud. I'm talking about like what you just Okay, said right okay, there. okay, okay. So um, you're asking how they came up with it. Yeah. So this, this is, this is, this, the, there's two examples. I'll give you another example afterwards. Let me finish, finish the story and I'll, I will get to your question. I will not skip it, okay? Silence. He says, I'm silence. <laughs> quiet. Stuck. That's the word. We know it in Hebrew. It means quiet. This is the way I think, not the way you think. He says, okay. Next question was, says the guy, okay, well, you showed me his Torah, you know, what about his reward? Show me his reward. And God says, okay, I'll show you his reward. Moses time travels back, and he gets, he sees Rabbi Tiva being flayed alive. And he goes to the guy and says, wait a minute, this is Torah, this is the reward for the Torah? Zu Torah, v'zu schara? What did God respond? Stoke, quiet. This is the way I think, not the way you think. So, obviously, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, there's, and remember, the authors of the Talmud um, are the greatest geniuses the world have ever, has ever seen. It's not even a question. Read the Talmud, and there's nothing that holds a candle to the Talmud. Nothing. Nothing that's dense, nothing that's brilliant, nothing that's comprehensive, nothing that's exhaustive. And even though it's 1,500 years old. So when they wrote this, we'll get to where they got it from in a second, but when they wrote this, there was in tremendous unfathomable amount of wisdom going into every word. So, of course, the questions, uh, there are a lot of good questions. Well, what's the meaning behind the crowns? And why is, you know, how does Rabbi Kiva derive laws from crowns? And what's the idea of time travel? How is Moses able to time travel? Well, you know, how do we... Huh? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's the Talmud. So it's, it's, it's obviously, it's meant for us to understand. I don't know, it's in the Talmud. I, the Talmud, I believe, is not necessarily, it's, it's, it's meant for us, right? The Talmud is, is not the hidden part of the Torah. Maybe the answer is the Kabbalah. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a Kabbalistic realm to the answer. I, 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 I don't know, I'm just saying, what, what are the questions? I know, very important questions, we have the question of the, theodicy, right? Bad things happen to good people. Rabbi Akiva, the great scholar. Moses says he should be the one to give the Torah. And gets flayed alive. And not only that, God, Moses tells God, Oh, this is Torah. Uh, show me his reward. He says, oh, I'll show you his reward. What does he show us? His punishment. How is this his reward? It's like Moses asked out a legitimate question. Show me his reward. And he showed him. He said, I'll show you something. I'll show you no problem. Time travel. 1,500 years later, Rabbi Kiva's being flayed alive. That's the, re- that's the reward? I asked for the word. reward. Show me the reward. Is it possible that's the reward? Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem... If it's the Ganeden, it's over there, not here. Yes, yeah, so show him Ganeden. Show, show, Mo, show, show Moshe the Ganeden of Rabbi Kiva, or the Olam Abba, or something of Rabbi Kiva. There's a lot of good questions there. But either way, to, uh, to your yes, point, yes, clearly um, uh, Rabbi Kiva, at least in Moses' eyes, was worthy. Uh, maybe Ezra w- would have been worthy. So it's not... It, it's, and it's possible that the nation was also primed for the Torah, and they also happen to have had the leader who was capable of it. It's kind of like we talk about Mashiach. The idea of Mashiach is really, it's an individual, but it's also a reflection of a nation. There's a nation, when the Jewish people are at a certain point, right, where Mashiach is happening, then we have to find, a, there's a candidate that's needed for that as well, but it's also the nation has to be worthy for it as well. So another example. Another example is prophecy. We know that prophecy, no human will ever reach, not, not ever again, but nowadays will reach prophecy. The era of prophecy ended, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last of the prophets at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, roughly 2,300 years ago. Well, why can't there be any prophets? Maybe there'd be great people. Yes, because a prophet 
is not only a reflection of an individual's greatness, it's also a reflection of the, of the state of a nation, a nation worthy of having prophecy. There's no temple, right? there's no miracles in the first temple. The second temple is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a shell of the first temple. And the nation is deteriorating, thus the nation is not worthy of having, of having prophecy. Thus, even if you have the great individual, that has to coincide with the nation worthy of that level. So, so that, that, that's part of, uh, of it as well. So, to Monarchos' question, where do they come up with this? Okay, especially because it seems very intriguing, shall we say. Um, so I'll give you another example of things that we find in the Talmud, which I think you would have the same question, and I think the answer might be slightly different. Okay? Um, this is from the Talmud in Brachos. The word Brachos, a bracha, is a blessing. Uh, and the book, the first, very first book of the Talmud is called Brachos or Brachot. And in it, it talks about blessings. We know that there's six blessings you say before you eat foods. Depends which six different food categories. So six different blessings before you eat food, three different blessings after you eat food. And then there's various blessings with regards to uh, natural phenomena. Uh, you see a, a Jewish teen or even a non-Jewish teen, you say certain blessings. You see a great person, you say their blessing. You see right a lot of blessings that we have. All the laws of blessings. Some of the laws of prayer. Most of the laws of prayer uh, are included in that book. Uh, in it, in the end, there's this very short statement. Okay, this is from the Talmud, in the book of Brachos, fifty-seven uh, B. Quote: Three things are a measure of the world to come. Shlosha me'ein olamaba. There's three things that are like olamaba, like the world to come. What are they? Shabbos, Shemesh, and Tashmish. So Shabbos is Shabbos. Shemesh means the sun, and Tashmish is unclear what it means. It's unclear because the word Tashmish in Hebrew or in Aramaic, it's more frequently used in Aramaic, has an ambiguous meaning. It can mean one of two things. So the Talmud says, which, which Tashmish are you referring to? My, tashmish to my, which Tashmish are you talking about? If you say it's Tashmish Hamita, which means intercourse, sexual intercourse, if you say that's what it means, well, that cannot be a measure of the world to come because that makes someone weak. Rather, it must be Tashmish Nikav, which means going to the bathroom, relieving one's bowels. Thus concludes the Talmud. <laughs> and Rabbi Wall, are you telling me that these are the great geniuses who authored this? <laughs> Shemesh. Shemesh is Shemesh. It doesn't tell us what it is. So this is an example of incredible genius that's not only going to present content of the highest regard, but also present it in a way that only the intended people are going to understand it. I'll say what I mean here. I'm in the middle of a book now, uh, one of the comprehensive um, books on World War II. And what I found striking in this reading of the, of the book, I'm starting to see Stand the Wall, if you guys have a copy of it, it doesn't look like it. Uh, but one of the interesting things about this book is how much they stress the fact that the British, they were able to decrypt the Enigma codes. Uh, I'm sorry? No, the German, the German, all the German communications. Yes, so they were able, they knew... For example, that in the in the nineteen forties, the Germany was not going to invade the island, Britain. They knew that because they had access to the highest, most secretive uh, communications uh, 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 from uh, the Germans. We saw a movie yeah. where the guy decoded it. He had the first, made the first computer. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, the yeah. Turing. But they yeah. were bombed, London... Oh, yeah, they were bombed. Place. But they, that's true, they, they were bombed, and they were bombed for months on end every night. And they bombed Berlin months on end every night. Um, they returned the favor. Um, but what, what I found remarkable is how many times the book, all the time it's saying how the British had this advantage that the Germans didn't know that they were able to hear, to, to actually read and decrypt all, and eventually, it wasn't just the Air Force. It was, it was, it was the Navy. They knew all the Navy communications. They knew exactly where the German U-boats. The German U-boats caused so much chaos. The German uh, that they torpedoed all the merchant ships, and they had they had just an incredibly devastating effect on the beginning of the war, because the German U-boats were bombing everything in sight. The the, the the you couldn't get anything to England, anything from England, because it would just be bombed 
by the German U-boats. And then afterward, they, they cracked the code, and they knew exactly where all the mines were. They knew exactly where all the U-boats were. They knew everything. You know, that contributed enormously to the, to, 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 the, to, to, the, to the Allied effort in World War II. What does that do with our... This is an example of an Enigma code. If you were the author of the Talmud, and you're trying to present a very deep idea that is multifaceted, but you're only intending certain people to understand it. You don't want it to. You don't want to spell it out. First, if you spell it out, it might take pages and pages. But also, you want that the right person understands it. The wrong person does not understand it. What you would do is you would encrypt it. You would put a mask, a facade, on top of the wisdom and make it very hard to degree. Now, how would you do that? How would you put up a facade? So one way you would do it. One way, as we see over here, you give illustrations. You say. Uh, is it this? Is it that? You know, you, you, you talk in obscure terms. You say things like, three things in the world to come, measure the world to come. What does that even mean? We don't even know what that even means. And it says, Shabbos. Doesn't, doesn't, tell, anything, doesn't, tell, doesn't tell us anything about Shabbos. It just says one word, Shabbos. What, what value is that? Yeah, it's like, it's, it's literally an, enco- an encoded message. Shemesh, the sun. What does that tell us? Nothing, right? Tashmish. Which Tashmish? This Tashmish. That, that Tashmish. Boom, you finish it. That's, that's number one. It's written in obscure terms. Number two, the only way to actually understand it is if you're able to gather all the puzzle pieces that are scattered throughout the Talmud. So what they do is they take a, an incredible lesson and they'll take it and break it up into 100 pieces. And they'll put in every Talmud, every book of the Talmud, they'll get a part of the, part of the puzzle. So unless someone was able to study the entire Talmud, or a, have a good understanding in the Talmud, they would have no clue what this means. No clue whatsoever. No idea at all. And this is a great example. The previous Talmud read is another great example. So in fact, it's not, it's not uh, where the rabbis come up with this bizarre statement. It's like, to fathom the genius that's able to write such incredibly profound lessons in a way that sounds on surface level as being totally, as, as if there's no editor. That's what it sounds like. And yet, when you're able to study it, and I spent, on this particular piece of Talmud, I spent six months of my life trying to understand it, and I have a whole class that I've given multiple times, and it's dramatic what actually is going on over here, and the Marbins heard it once, and I think that they would attest, would they agree that it was dramatic? Yeah. And the lessons are life-changing, and you want to know what happens after you die? What, what's Olam Abba? This is it. It's telling you. But it's also telling you, oh, it's not just for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, right? It's not just from every, every Joe Schmo. Uh, it's like, this is here. It's incredible wisdom, but it's encoded. Unless you have the Enigma code. Can you do what Hillel did? Tell us the whole Torah on one foot? Yeah, I'll tell you the whole Torah. <laughs> yeah. well, I really that? did that because I, I, I consolidated it into like 55 minutes. Does that mean that you have to in a yeshiva or a Torah scholar to understand the Talmud? Of course. Well, especially the things that are encrypted, that are encrypted to such a degree. Mm-hmm. Olam Abba, that is one of the most esoteric topics in all of Judaism. They're obviously not going to take the deepest secrets of the Torah and spell it out so every four-year-old could, pop, could puppet it. They say, oh, I know the secrets, right? They would hide it and make sure that only the scholars were able to understand it. This? Yeah, so, oh, so what they're doing here is they're teaching us Torah in the form of philosophy. This is philosophy, right? This is what's Olam Abba, right? They're teaching us philosophy. Now, the philosophy they had is part of the corpus of Jewish tradition. However, when they actually had to finalize it in a document, remember the, the oral Torah, it being written down is a, is a tremendous departure from the way the Jewish people had been living uh, prior because it's called oral for a reason, because it should not be written down. There's at least five reasons why it's better to not, not write the, these things down. So this was part of the collected uh, uh, wisdom that's been transmitted generation to generation from Moses. There was a need, based on a necessity, uh, to write it down. And they took great lengths to make sure that when they wrote it down, they wrote it down in a complete 
fashion, but not necessarily in an organized fashion. So it's all there in the Talmud. Go study it. Get back to me in 55 years. Right? So it's still, it's all there. It's like, it's like a reference book almost, but a reference book where it's not in alphabetical order. Right? Can you imagine that? Like, like, a, like an Encyclopedia Botanica, but it's not alphabetical order. Yeah. But you still have an answer That's question. a great example. Right? So Can you imagine an encyclopedia? 28 volumes, but it's not in alphabetical order. You've got to learn it all. Monica, what question? And not only that, I got to say, I got to, I, if I haven't answered your question, let me just finish this point. This, let me bask in this a little bit. Not only that, you take the Encyclopedia Britannica, all 38 volumes of it, you, put, you just scramble it, not in order, and then you take uh, a lot of the really important ones and you just slice it, give slices in every book, scattered. Could you imagine? It's all there, yeah. Right? But the real scholars will know it, and the people that are pretenders, to them, will just, you have a sentence here. Well, what's a sentence? Right? So we don't know. Okay, now, w- 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 what doesn't make sense yet? Now, so what they did, they took the lessons, mm-hmm. the principles, the philosophical uh, uh, ideas, the immutable principles that they got from their teachers, they got from their teachers, part of the collected corpus of, of what's called the oral Torah. Right? What does it mean to be a Jew? Well, the philosophical aspects with regards to Ulam Abba, as inscribed, uh, described in this sentence. This is all from oral, but it's not all Torah, because like, I'm just curious, like in, you know, they take one sentence in the beginning, God, and then they come up with all... They come up with a whole book of what that one sinner... Yes, yeah, so, but, but remember that you're working backwards, I would argue. Who's to say that they come up with a book? I had an argument with someone recently. He's like, okay, when you read the Talmud, you're like, okay, we have a, we have a verse here. What does the verse tell us? Or oh, we have a law here. How is it sourced in the verse? What really, the way it really works, this is a little bit of a subtle idea, so let's see if we wrap our heads around this. The way it really works is that these two work in tandem. That they have written Torah and oral Torah work in tandem. So Thus, the oral Torah is not necessarily the same as the written the or, Torah? It's, 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 it's two sides of a coin. Right? Oral Torah, written Torah is the oral Torah. I would say that the written Torah is the encrypted version of what God wants from us. And the oral Torah is the decryption. And it's a lot longer. Yes. Okay. So, so thus, fine. essentially they're both telling us the same thing. You'll have a law that you'll read in the oral Torah, but it'll always say, well, this is how it's sourced in the written Torah, even though there might be hidden. For example, we have, we have entire books of Talmud, of oral Torah, that are sourced in one verse in, in, the, Torah, in the written Torah. Why? Because this one verse is very dense. It's only, it's only 12 words, whatever, 15 words, but in those words, so much is encrypted. So unpacking that... But it's it's not it's not it's not different. It's just two sides. One of those is the encrypted side, and one's the decrypted side, right? For example, if I if I if I if I, if I gave you yeah, uh, maybe this is a bad example. example. Give her an example. Uh, if, if I have a, a, a four uh, four character URL, and it and you put it in there, and it opens up a whole website with tons and tons of stuff, well, right? That, that really reminds me of the fact that every every Saturday when you read it, we read the portion of the. Torah, yeah. from the five books of Moses, yeah. there is always the, uh, the haftarah that co- correlates with whatever mm-hmm. is. So but I think this is, this, is, this, is, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit, well, it, it's kind of similar, because cause, cause, cause the, 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 the haftarah is always something which is slightly similar, or at least related, correlated, mm-hmm. but this is an entirely different mode of instruction. Right. Right. So, Absolutely. Right, so the, the oral Torah, the written Torah, they're all telling you the same thing. Well, However, yeah, if you just read the written Torah, you wouldn't know what film looks like. You would have no idea. So in other words, it's so, like right? details, right? Isn't yeah, it's it like, like details? It's, 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 oh, it's more than details. It's it's like, like, that's the subtle point I'm trying to make here. It is, well, the written Torah can tell us one letter, mm-hmm. and that will teach us laws upon laws upon laws in the oral Torah. Now, it's not saying that it, it's not different. It's just one's very, you know, one's, One's encrypted and one's decrypted. So if you decrypt this with the tools of the oral Torah, this is the result. And thus they can each play off each other. I'll give you an example here. The Talmud always talks about, oh, you have a law? Source it in the Torah. Why? Because everything in the oral Torah has to be sourced in the written Torah. So it says, oh, I have a law. Well, Menachem Mili, where does it say it? 
And then it could work backwards and say, oh, I have a verse. What does the verse teach me? So which way does it go? Does the verse teach me the oral Torah? Or does the oral Torah teach does that source in the verse? Where, where's the starting point? The, the, the true answer is that there is no starting point. Because they complement each other, exactly. Would it be like if the Torah tells you you need to have the circumcision, but doesn't tell you how? Well, that would be an example. Yeah, and Talmud explains how you have the circumcision. Uh, but every, any law, every, every, any every law pertaining. But also, in, in just to follow, to follow up uh, in, in, in a way that's somewhat similar to, um, to what we mentioned earlier in the Talmud, where things are scattered, we find laws, like everyone here is, I don't know if everyone here is married. Is everyone here married? Well, most, most, most people here are married, right? So how does a Jewish marriage, uh, marriage uh, ceremony work? So there's the ring. There's a few sentences that are said. And there's a canopy. A lot of stuff are going on, right? There's a ketubah. Right? There's the rabbi who's officiating. Right? There's the band. <laughs> uh, right? So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, rituals, a lot of uh, uh, ceremonies. Now, how do we know what actually makes the marriage? You know, what, what, what changes status from being not married to married? So it's the presentation of the rings. Right, with, with what's called kesef or shavet kesef. Something of value, like a ring, or something, uh, actual cash would work as well. No, people don't do that for whatever reason. It's less romantic, you know, to take like a roll of quarters, or right? Or a cow or a goat. Right, exactly. Uh, but that, that, is, um, that is how uh, Jewish marriage happens. That's how the transaction, so to speak, happens. Make them, they're not married, now they're married. Right? When there's a transference of value. Where, where do we know that? Every Jewish marriage happens like that. Every single one. Where, where do we know that? Well, it's in the Torah. Well, which Torah? Where? Where? I want you to look from beginning of, of Genesis all the way to the end of, uh, of Deuteronomy, and I want you to spend 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, your whole life, you won't find it. With Rivka, I guess, isn't it? Well, no, because that that they weren't married yet. You would think maybe. Well, you won't find it because it's hidden. Well, how do we know? It's, it's got to be the written Torah, right? If it's in the oral Torah, it's got to be the written Torah as well. But it could be very hidden. Okay, so first of all. Remember, Yaakov is, that's before Torah was actually given, right? So we can't necessarily take from an episode of Yaakov and, 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 and Rachel. Because remember, even though Yaakov gave, even in the story, Yaakov gave Rachel, he gave her the, the bracelets and stuff. That's before they got married. That was seven years before they got married. So they weren't even married. That was a gift. They weren't, right. They, that, that came much later. So where? Where does it tell us? Let me tell you what it tells us. Where where is written clearly in the written Torah that you use money or money equivalent to get married? You know what's written like this. The verse says in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five, ki ish isha, when a man marries a woman, and the word the word that it uses, kach, which means to take, man takes a woman. Talks about marriage, goes on. And if you were to dial the clock back and go all the way back to Genesis. In the Parshas Chai is Sarah. So it's uh, chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 20 in Genesis, 19 to 20. And it talks about Abraham's wife Sarah died, and he's looking to find a place to bury her. And he finds this cave that he really likes, and he has to negotiate and back and forth. And he eventually comes, he finds out that the guy Ephron is the, o- is the owner, and he negotiates with him, and Nasati kesef hasade kach mimeni. It says, "I will ta- uh, take. Uh, I will. I will take the field. Right? Take the money. Take the field." And it says that it gives the money, uh, four hundred silver pieces. Says the Talmud, the word kach is present in both of these stories. One's talking about Abraham buying a funeral home or a resting place for Sarah. One's talking about a man getting married. They're not related. You would think, right? But he uses the same word, based upon the principle of Shava, which means when it says the same word in two places in the Torah, that links the two together. Thus, just like Abraham bought the field with money, so too the marital, marital transaction happens with money. And that's where explicitly in the Torah it says you get married with money. And if you read the Torah a thousand times, you would never find it. Because it's hidden, it's encrypted. 
the Talmud says, oh, the Talmud unpacks, gives us the other side of the coin. It gives us the flip side of it, right? It shows us, you know, it, 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 it opens up our eyes to say, oh, well, now it makes sense. It's just explained to you. Like, oh, okay. There's the idea of, of, of Zereshav, which means similar, same word, or, or even similar word, because Hebrew words change contexts. Kiyikach and kach, it's the same root of the word, but different context. So the same word in different places, that creates a link between the two of them, and that uh, teaches that laws could be transferred back and forth. This happens in the Talmud thousands of times. There is another, another I think it's um, the laws of going to war. Every law, and every law. And you're like, if, if, if you read the Talmud and you understood what that meant for what the written Torah actually stands for, you have a book here that's so dense. It's Well, it's on one end, you can read it and just it's a narrative, right? You can read the, 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 the King James version of the, of, the, of the Jewish Bible and you just read it and it makes sense on one hand. Simple understanding, just easy translation. And then you look how the, how the oral Torah reads it and it's, it's suddenly a, a document that has so much information all the collective information of the Talmud, all is all there. And it's written, but it's written and it's hidden and it's coded and it's, there's 13 ways that, 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 that laws can be derived from the verses. 13 different ways. So that's an example. The one I said is that, uh, is where the same word appears in, diff- in, diff- in, in, in different places that creates a link between them. And like, could you imagine someone trying to write that himself? Using the same words and using all these hair, harebrained methods. If you t- take the two, the written Torah and the oral Torah together, Right, which is what we say is collective Torah, and you say, and they and how beautifully they work together, and how each one relates is is only possible with the other one. You did that, and you say, could this have been written by man? You would be insane to think so. Uh, it's just it's it's unimaginable. You know, no man can be that brilliant. No 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 thousand men can be that brilliant. It's not possible to do it all so perfectly that it all works out. There's not a single word that's extra. Every word has some application of in the in the in the oral Torah. Every oral Torah source the written Torah, and it all works out so perfectly. All that to be made up by, by by a man—it's insane. It's insane. So thus, when someone says, "I want to analyze the Torah," well, let's see who wrote it, right? And if they take half of the coin, so they're taking an encrypted book and say, uh, "Imagine you took like you know you 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 actually looked at uh, something that's encrypted, just letters, random letters. You have no idea what the mean is. You're like, oh." Um, this obviously is written by a lunatic, right? Or it's by someone who's retarded because this doesn't make any sense. Right? That's what people are essentially saying when they read the, they read the Torah, the written Torah, without the oral Torah because they get just a surface-level reading. They have no idea what they're even reading. You know? I just saw today in the Talmud. You know, Talmud's talking about if a woman gets got a bit raped. All right? So she's obviously not liable for anything. And then it says... Ein lanara chait mavis. Right? Ulanara lo and to the girl don't do anything. Ein lanara chait mavis. She, the, the, the girl, did not have a sin worthy of being killed for. Right? She's obviously, she was coerced. Now, if it says, and we have a Hebrew speaking here, so, so have, you guys have some verification that I'm not making this up for you guys. Because <laughs> otherwise, if there's, if, if there's no Hebrew speaker, I can say whatever I want, they would have no idea. <laughs> Right? It's true. I wouldn't, but it's still true. But at least now you guys know for sure. That's enough, says the Talmud. Don't do anything to the girl. You know that you can't do that. Is, is extra. The Talmud derives four new laws from that. There's four new laws from four extra words. Not only that, the word na'ara is spelled different ways in the Hebrew. Sometimes it's nun ein resh, and then the hey, the vowel is silent. It's written in the form of nikudot. Sometimes the hey is written. And in this place, the hey is written. So the extra letter that couldn't have, sometimes is in, sometimes not, is out, the chaserot and yeterot of the Torah, the extra letters, in, sometimes the vowels are actually written in the forms of letters. That we learn a law from as well. We have a book that's unfathomably deep. And people say, you know what, I want to read it, and they read the encrypted version. And they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Or, well, this seems extra. 
You just you're repeating yourself. God would never repeat himself, right? You take a half a book and you say, well, uh, l- l- let me try to cast judgment on that. Hey, that's not that's not fair. So uh, that would be uh, with regards to oral Torah as well. And oral Torah is only as good as how well it fits in the written Torah. That's what they, they, they complement each other. The Talmud very frequently says, oh, this rabbi says the teaching of the oral Torah. This is his tradition. This is what my teacher told me. Okay. Now we know that humans are, fall- are, fall- are fallible, right? It's possible for humans to make a mistake. And the Talmud always questions, well, really, is that true? But I have a proof otherwise. Or where's the source for it? And it happens not very often in the Talmud. The hat in the Talmud sometimes discards an opinion of one of the great rabbis because it's not substantiated by the oral Torah, but by the written Torah. Which, which means that the, that the oral Torah is not something on its own. It doesn't stand on its own. It is a complement. It's the other side of the same coin. It is the different perspective of the prism of the written Torah. And each without the other, you, you, you can't make any sense of it. Right? If you had an oral Torah that is not bound by any restrictions of the written Torah, so what could happen? Anyone, I teach a tradition, and I make a mistake, and my, and my students, they make a mistake, uh, or maybe even one student makes a mistake. You don't have to have a whole student, right? It's possible. These things happen. And then we have no, we have no document to, to, you know, to cross-check it upon. You don't have that document, suddenly it could go awry. You have the written Torah now. Every oral Torah teaching has to go back and be verified by the written document. And if it can't be verified, then obviously made a mistake. Similarly, the written Torah, that on its own, yeah, you could, you could print a million copies of it, but you don't know what you're actually doing. You, it's much easier to preserve its, its, uh, its accuracy because it's there, it's, it's, it's written down. Uh, but its understanding is, is, is hidden because it's all encrypted. And therefore, the oral Torah comes and that sheds light on the written Torah. And together, that creates Torah. Torah is, in its fulfillment, in, 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 in the classical sense of the Torah, in the, in the meaningful sense of the Torah, where the Torah is what God wants of us, it is able to be transmitted with perfect accuracy for thousands of years because it is written in such a unique fashion. It's this hybrid. Is it a written corpus? Well, yes. Is it an oral corpus? Well, yes, as well. <laughs> well, which one is it? Well, it's both. The two are able to convey what God wants of us. What about what, what happens between the written Torah and the oral Torah? I mean, there were a lot. There was a lot of cent- there were centuries that went before they codified the the Talmud. Well, years. no, much more than five hundred years. The Mishnah was written about the year two hundred of the Common Era. Jewish sources put the uh, the um, Mount Sinai experience and uh, so the death of Moses. Let's say the death of Moses, the finalizing of the written Torah, canonization of the written Torah, uh, almost fourteen hundred years earlier. So there were six. There were. Uh, thir- uh, 1,300 years. There was 1,312 years. before the Common Era. That's the date. The, the Jewish date for Mount Sinai is, is 1,312 before the Common Era. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, 1,500, sorry, more than that, 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. 1,512 years before the year 200 of the Common Era. Right? Mitzvah. Well, 1,500 years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Before so the Mishnah, the Talmud was written 300 years later. Um, what was he instructed? They just knew? Oh, it's oral. That's why it's called oral. Yeah, but there was before and, the and Mishnah. Yeah, okay. it, it, it was oral, um, and people Until kept notes. Remember, Maimonides points this out. Mm-hmm. He says, everyone kept notes, of course. Okay. It's a lot of information to remember. But there was, it was never canonized. Right. It was never finalized uh, as it was in the, in the Mishnah and subsequently the Talmud. So, so yes, it wasn't just people memorize. They did memorize a lot. We know that the, 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 Mishnah, the Mishnah means repetition because they used to repeat it a thousand times until they memorized it. Uh, and we know that the, 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 um, the, uh, the um, standards of scholarship were insane. Uh, it was standard. It was just standard for any Jewish child to spend at least 14 years under the tutelage of a, of, of a teacher. When we say 14 years, it doesn't mean like, uh, you know, for, 
three years of med school and three years of this and three years of that. It means 14 years of total dedication and immersion in Torah, in oral Torah, because it's oral, it's dynamic, right? The teacher teaches, the student learns, the student studies with the teacher, the student asks questions, right? It, you know, and that clarifies, uh-huh, right? If I, if I don't have a harus, I want to die, says the Talmud. Because if you can't clarify it, right? When you have oral, just like you, if you guys went to school, right? You go to school, why don't you just read from a book? Because it's not alive when it's, you know, it's read from a book. Right? It's alive when you discuss it. When you, it, it, when you hear a lecture, you disagree, you argue, you argue the points out, you talk it over with your friends, you teach it, that makes it alive. So that existed for 1,500 years. Uh, and then come, come along to the Romans, the Romans say, teach, teach Torah publicly, you get killed. Right? But Greer Bativ is executed. Right? Ten great rabbis are executed. Uh, there's Jewish people are starting to get exiled and dispersed in greater numbers than they've had before. Uh, the temple is destroyed. Sanhedrin is on the run back and forth. Sanhedrin, the, 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 the central authority of the Jewish people. Right? There is a risk that it cannot be transmitted orally for that much longer without being for, things being forgotten or having any lapses. You have a lapse. You have one lapse, you're done. You can't afford any significant lapse. You could have individual lapses. You can't have a whole nation lapse. But the risk is now much greater. Comes along the great Rabbi Judah the Prince, and he says, I'll write it down. Even though that's obviously, that's anathema, to write down the oral Torah. You just told me, Rabbi, the oral Torah is dynamic. It's supposed to be dynamic. It's supposed to be this, you know, this, 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 uh, this um, uh, corpus that's alive. And now you're going to write it down. It's going to be out of a book. Are people going to read it? What's going to be? Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, we say that he destroyed the Torah to uphold the Torah. He's an example of someone who says, listen, the to- oral Torah has to be oral. However, if we keep it oral, it's going to be forgotten entirely. So he made a very pragmatic decision with tremendous foresight to say, I, it's better for me to write it down. Me, no, me is a collection of a thousand rabbis who did it. But it's better for us to write it down now when we're still able to, then to have the risk that there's going to be a generation where there's going to be a total lapse and then the Jewish people are over it, the whole thing, everything, everything, just absolute disaster. But when it got written down, it's obviously a terrible thing. That in itself, being written down, is, is bad because, well, now it's written. Oral Torah is written. And the benefit of, of it being dynamic, we, we talked about it. God wanted to do it in the most perfect way. God, God wants to give us Torah in the most perfect way. So he did it in this dual uh, dual Torahs that are, are really one. Because that is the most perfect way to transmit accurately for centuries very delicate information. That's the best way to do it. You write it down, you lose a lot. So if you notice, by the way, just to finish up the point here, Rabbi Judah the Prince writes down the Mishnah. The Mishnah is only half of the oral Torah. The other half stayed oral. What he essentially did was, says, listen, I have to write down the bare minimum yeah. that's necessary. I'm not going to write down any more than, the, than necessary. I'm not going to write down the Talmud half of the Mishnah uh, of the Oral Torah. And that, that, he didn't, that was written down until 300 years later with Ravina and Ravashi. They wrote down the Talmud. And you know what? Some things were still not written down. Until this day, there's parts of the Oral Torah that were never, ever written down. Uh, well, that would be called the Hidden Torah. Uh, maybe uh, collectively known as Maybe we could even say Kabbalah. Kabbalah is part of the written Torah. It's not written down. You say, oh, well, I read, I read uh, The Idiot's Guide to Kabbalah. Well, yeah, you read, some, you read something. You didn't, read, you, didn't, you didn't actually read Kabbalah. You know, you read some nonsense that maybe had red strings involved and some diagram of Ketar Malchut. You're like, you, know, you know nothing. You know absolutely nothing. That's a part of the oral Torah that is part of this collective knowledge of the Jewish people that was never, ever written down. Mm-hmm. So it w- parts of the Torah were written down incrementally. So we have the Mishnah and then the Talmud. We have Halacha. Halacha, Maimonides. His contribution is that he kind of did the oral Torah of Halacha. You remember, we said the Talmud is like this, this it has everything there, but it's not organized. Right? The Talmud has everything there, but it's the encyclopedia that has everything. It's not written in, in alphabetical order. The Rabbah, what he essentially does is he alphabetizes it. In the Mishnah Torah? In the Mishnah Torah. Right? That's what he does. Not only that, the Talmud leaves a lot of things open for 
uh, like halacha is not necessarily halacha, which means a, a, a actual practical applications of, uh, of, 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 of disputes that exist in the Talmud. That's not written down until Maimonides. Maimonides is not really the first, but Maimonides, along with other uh, um, contemporaries, like the Rabbi Alfasi, like the Tour, like the Rush, ultimately the Shulchan Aruch, uh, or Joseph, Rabbi Joseph Cairo, they are responsible for taking another great step in the process of formalizing, canonizing, organizing, writing down in an immutable fashion a part of the oral Torah. Yeah, but, but, by, by design. Because they too, Ravina Ravashi wrote in the Talmud, they too had the same sensitivity that Rabbi Judah the Prince had, that writing down the oral Torah is a big no-no. It has to be written down for the sake of, of, of posterity for the Torah. But write down the minimum. So they, obviously they didn't write the hidden stuff of the Torah. And even the things that we read today, like Olam Abba, those things are written in a way that is so... Uh, uh, clearly obscured the intention of, 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 of the authors to make it very hard for someone to unpack it. Uh, so they, they too follow the formula of even when you write it down, don't write everything. And even what you do write, don't necessarily write everything in the clearest fashion possible. It sounds like the Kabbalah. It's well, Kabbalah was never written down. So if you look at the Talmud, Talmud doesn't tell you any Kabbalah. Not everybody can understand. Well, it's not for everybody. So therefore, if it's not for everybody... But Could maybe that that is the last frontier. Everybody? I'm sorry. Could the Talmud still be not? Well, everybody? the problem with the Talmud is that it, the the well, not the the problem. It's not a problem. It's the design of the Talmud is that it's really a book of scholarship, and that's what Maimonides says. I'm gonna I'm gonna help you with that because if you want to actually know what to do, how do I behave? Mm-hmm. Right. That you'll have a very hard time finding the Talmud because it's not necessarily organized and things are are are. It's not the conclusion is not written down, mm-hmm. and things are scattered. I'll organize you and tell you what you need to do. That's what's called halacha. Halacha is practical applications. What do I actually do? So it's there in the Talmud, but it's there for the scholars. It's scattered. It's, it's written sometimes in an obscured fashion. Comes along my mind and says, I'm going to organize it for you. I'm gonna, that's the next step of the oral Torah. Being finalized and written down. Uh, so to answer your question, I think we, 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 we did. Well, it, it, it's different, but it's a reflection of each other. Um, and it's not the rabbis made up nonsense. The rabbis are doing their job in writing down the oral Torah that it was always part of the Jewish people. Moses got the oral Torah. Moses taught the Jewish people more oral Torah than written Torah. Written Torah is almost an afterthought if you read the story. Moses, the last day of his life, writes down written Torahs. Right? Last couple of days of his life, he writes down, uh, writes down a bunch of Torahs. That's not the focus. The focus is the oral Torah. Because that's obviously much bigger. That's much more important to memorize. What's more important to learn is a written Torah. You can always go to the book and bookshelf and pull out a written Torah. Right? Yeah, it's important, it's important to, to you know, maybe memorize it or know, have a, a good understanding. But it, it's, it's written. What you actually need to do when you're studying is to study the oral Torah. That's what you need to study. You know, that's what they did primarily. The oral Torah written Torah are parts of, are, are two uh, aspects of Torah. And both of them are necessary for it to be transmitted uh, in the most perfect sense. Um, and the oral Torah ultimately was written down. Um, the method and the style of the writing really shows just how incredible the oral Torah actually is on its own, but also the brilliant genius of, uh, of the authors of the oral Torah, of the codifiers of the oral Torah, in presenting their material in a way uh, that fulfilled their aims. So if their aim was to let's teach the greatest uh, the idea about the about Alamaba, let's let's write it all down. Well let's you know let's write Alamaba section scatter at throughout the Talmud. And even when we write the, the thing, we'll say three things are measure what to come, Shabbat Shemis and Tash what's Tashbish, I don't know is it intercourse, no, is can't be intercourse, it must be going to the bathroom, etc. And you read that, you're like, okay, that one went unless you actually say, I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to spend time in it. I'm going to analyze every other time that the Talmud says Olam Abba. I'm going to look at what it says about Shemesh and the various four or five times where it, where it links 
the idea of Shemesh of a sun and a Lamaba. And the verses are talking about, 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 about the sun. And what does the sun represent? And every time that it says it's something about the sun, and what does it mean Tashmish? And, why, and, and, and what, what else do we know about Tashmish? And why this, why this, yes, why this, no? And collect all the writings that Maimonides has on Lamaba and see the insights that he's bringing, and then you'll make sense to you. And if you want to actually do that, I would advise you. I've several times... And you'd spend 20 years in the, in the yeshiva while you're learning. It would help. <laughs> that would help. Uh, but we did, we did this exercise. We taught this Talmud. And we read it. No, in the class, you were there. Yeah, but I'm saying, did you study all this in yeshiva? No, no. I spent, a, I spent a, you know, time in yeshiva studying these kinds of things. This particular one, I studied after I left yeshiva. Uh, but we did it, and it was remarkable what we found. When we said, well, what, how many times has Shabbos been connected to the Lama Bach? Oh, we find the Talmud, that Talmud says in the Vodazara, book of Vodazara, cha- on, on page 3a, it says that Lama Bach is similar to the change. What happens between the Lama Zen and Lama Bach, this world, next world, is similar to Friday and Shabbos. Oh. Oh, so we see that this, these two are connected. Hmm. We find other connections. Lama Bach, the sun is going to be diminished because the brightness of the Tzadikim uh, is going to overwhelm the brightness of the sun. Oh, the Talmud of, in Baba tells us the face of Moshe was like the face of the sun. Remember, Jewish people couldn't look at Moshe, he had to wear a mask. Oh, so Moshe was like the sun. The sun's like a Lama Ba. Oh, what do we know about Moshe? Oh, Moshe is able to talk to God. Moshe is able to time travel. Remember we just mentioned Moshe is able to time travel? How is Moshe able to time travel? Maybe Moshe has the ability, he has the status of a Lama Ba. And thus, Alam Abba is a, is a world that's very different than this world, thus doesn't have the same constraints of time and space. Ooh, that makes sense now. It's not just a random miracle God, Moses able to travel. Moses is someone who is living with Alam Abba. His face is like the sun. Alam Abba is like the sun. Right? Alam Abba, the verse says, I know Rasa, you can't see, you can't see Alam Abba. Even the prophets couldn't see Alam Abba. What else can't you see? You can't see the sun. I look at the sun for five seconds. See what happens. Well, why can't you see, right? Suddenly this seems to make sense, right? That's, that's our, our regal achat. Just, uh, either way, um, I think that uh, the discussion should hopefully um, really give a little bit more of a complete picture of what we say, what we mean when we say Torah. Because I think there is a, unfortunately a tendency to be very, very you know, juvenile in our understanding and to really have, like, the understanding that we had when we were going to Sunday school, or religious school. That's what we think Torah is. Eh, it's some book, whatever. Moshe wrote it, Jeremiah wrote it. Who wrote the Bible? Let's read what Elliot, Richard Elliot Freeman says. You know? When in reality, like, when you learn about what Torah is, how we define... If you actually read the written Torah and the oral Torah together... You would have no doubt that it's not possible for a human to put this together, much less four humans and one redactor and the insane model that he has. You would have no doubt. It's not possible for a human to write this thing. It's not possible. You know, that's the goal. The goal is that hopefully tonight, it's funny, it's funny how when I don't, when I walk into a class and I don't know what we're going to talk about, it's usually the best kind of discussions. Um, but either way, I, I think that we can emerge. Uh, surely with a um, a little bit more complete uh, a mature perspective of what it means Torah, what it means oral Torah, what it means written Torah uh, and how they play how they uh, interplay with each other uh, and how fascinating the the result is tapestry that emerges the question there? You know what oh. a wild card is, means Wild card, this is the wild card, yeah <laughs> Okay Everyone have a wonderful Shabbat. Mm-hmm. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Interesting class.